The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, for it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, ACC. I'll just say a quick prayer before I begin. Heavenly Father, as I'm delivering my first sermon to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I call upon the Holy Spirit to help keep me rooted in your truth. Grant me your wisdom to explain your word and spread the good news of the gospel. In your mighty name, I pray. Amen. All right, so last week, Pastor Jim walked us through the beauty of God's creation, and more specifically, the mind of Christ, his humanity, his humility, his servant leadership, his obedience, and eventually, his ultimate sacrifice to save us from our sins. Let me begin by stating that our Astoria Community Church is very diverse, and we have born-again Christians who followed a different religion previously, including me. So let's take a look at the concept of works in different religions of the world. Hinduism strongly believes in karma, and the Google definition says, the sum of a person's actions in this and prior states of existence is viewed as deciding their fate in future existence. So, if you do good stuff, you get good karma, and that results in good things that will happen to you. If you do bad stuff, that results in bad karma, and that will result in bad things happening to you. It all depends upon the deeds that you do in your life. Buddhism teaches that a man is on his own, and the path of salvation is the path of self-effort. 
Confucianism is an ancient Chinese belief system which focuses on the importance of personal ethics. Taoism says that salvation is achieved by man by following the Tao, and the Taoism philosophy is based on three pillars, simplicity, patience, and compassion. Lastly, Islam says salvation is based upon a system of good works, things that Allah wants you to do. You do those things, and you receive the reward in eternity that you want. People are saved through obedience to the Sharia law. So all these religions are works-based and put more effort on the performance of our personhood to attain salvation. I hope this sets the stage to understand our passage today in a bit more detail. In the verses that we just heard, Paul is warning the Philippians against the false teachers. One particular group Paul cautions against are the Judaizers. We also read in Titus 1 verse 10, for there are many insubordinates, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So these are the teachers who claim that faith in Christ was not enough for salvation. These teachers added the requirements of the Old Testament law on top of the gospel. This group focused on legalism and turned the practice of circumcision from an act of obedience into a mutilation of the flesh. These false teachers sought to promote adherence and emphasis to the Torah as part of Christianity, something Paul spoke against. Let's quickly reference what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, not by works, including works of the law. Having said that, he impresses upon the fact that if he were to identify with those who believe in salvation by works, birth, or ancestry, he had all of the proper Jewish credentials. Let's dive into Paul's credentials, verses 4 through 6. We read in Genesis 17, And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house, or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. Paul had been circumcised on the eighth day. His parents did this in accordance with God's command given to Abraham. Acts 22. When they heard him addressing them in Hebrew, they became all the more quiet. And he continued, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. At the feet of Gamaliel, I was educated strictly in our ancestral law and was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was born Jewish. His training and lifestyle were perfect, according to Judaism. Paul calls himself Hebrew of Hebrews. Acts 23, but when Paul perceived that the one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm called in question. Paul was a Pharisee, the most religiously conservative group of Jews in his time. Pharisees were known for strictly following Jewish laws and customs. They are particularly noted in the Gospels for the devotion to traditions of the law. They felt that this kept them pure before the Lord. 
In Acts 9, Paul mentions his burning passion for Judaism, which led him to brutally persecute Christians before his own conversion. Paul was originally named Saul and was infamous for his harassment of the church before being changed by Christ. Paul notes also that according to the Torah and ritual law, he was obedient. He followed the Jewish traditions and kept himself ritually clean. Very few Jews could make this claim, even fewer who could match all of the claims that Paul has listed in these few verses. This is why Paul could say, even to those who thought they had reasons to be confident in their rituals and words, that he had more. That would surely make up for a well-loaded resume. There was no more qualified individual according to the Old Testament and Jewish tradition than Paul. In other words, if someone were to judge Paul's spirituality only on the basis of Judaic requirements, he had the right areas covered. But this section is not Paul's attempt to prove his own worth by words or his impeccable life. However, he emphasizes that his own impressive resume is not enough. He teaches that these traits are unimportant for those who seek to truly know God. On the contrary, he's making the point that nobody can be truly justified by anything other than faith. All that mattered to Paul was Christ. Everything else was not merely less valuable. It was utter garbage, or rather done. He's describing his great and noteworthy human achievements using the worst word picture he could share with his audience. As we move along, we see in verses 7 and 8, he discards all his traits. And let's be very clear that any Jew at the time would have done anything to have such an impeccable resume as him. He counts them as loss for the sake of Christ. Regardless of his worldly success, his hope was found in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and living for him. Now in financial terms, a gain is an increase in the value of an asset, while a loss refers to the decrease in the value of the asset. When Paul met Christ, a wonderful transaction took place, and he came to realize how futile and worthless were his lineage or his good works to achieve God's standard of righteousness. He's basically writing off all his assets as a loss. Notice, he says his resume does not matter, his list of achievements and accomplishments are nothing. Whatever gain that he has in the flesh is counted as a loss. He gladly traded those for more time, fellowship, and discipleship with Christ. He got the biggest gain in the knowledge of Christ, the intimacy with Christ. Note the specific verse, sake of Christ. He uses this phrase in Philippians 1, 29, as well as in 2 Corinthians 12 and Philemon 1. To Paul, nothing else mattered in comparison to Christ. This included his religion, his family, his ancestry, his career, and his worldly accomplishments. He had left Jerusalem and the temple in exchange for Rome and imprisonment. He had no freedom to travel or to live as he pleased. Brothers and sisters, anything we rely on or take pride in more than Christ is a barrier to our fellowship with him. They can actually impede our walk with Christ. 
Only faith can make us right with God. Christ gave Paul his faith, and his faith depended completely on him. Paul saw no other source for salvation than Jesus. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus himself taught that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The reason we count everything else as worthy of putting in the trash can because there is nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is the highest value, the highest gain. The greatest treasure that you can have is knowing Jesus. Bible also gives us a clear depiction of the life of a busy person and the life of a person who made time to sit and experience God. Luke 10, verses 38 to 42 say, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. For Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus' response in the last two sentences do strike me to the core. The good portion in Jesus' eyes was to sit and listen to him, an idea that unfortunately contradicts most of what we value in our culture today. We value those who fill their time with service and action, but that's not what Jesus valued. Jesus valued Mary, who spent her time sitting at his feet. Jesus valued Mary's willingness to make time to be with him. And we don't just find this teaching in one instance here. Psalm 127.2 it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Clearly, there's a principle of rest and making space for God that spans across the entirety of Scripture. We may be failing in our actions to show this truth, but we must recognize this truth. Christ is worth more than anything. He's so valuable that we will count everything else in our life as trash. And what is the result of counting everything as loss? There are three things. First, to gain Christ. Second, to be found righteous in Christ, and third, to know Christ. Talking about the first point, Paul says that he counts all things as trash in order to gain Christ, the worth of knowing him. This is the new life perspective for the Christian. Every decision we make must be under the calculation of whether this will cause us to gain Christ or not. Gaining Christ is everything, if you want to be with Christ, if you want to enjoy the intimacy with Christ. Second, if you want to be found righteous in Christ, 
But notice that the righteousness that Paul desires does not come from his own achievements. This is not a righteousness that comes from the law. He wants to be found in Christ, having been given a righteousness from him that comes through faith. Putting our trust in Christ is how we will be granted the declaration of righteous by God. Our achievements do not impress God. We cannot win the favor of God because we have done some good things. We must depend fully upon the grace of God. We want to depend solely upon Christ as the means for our righteousness. So we count everything as loss so that we can gain Christ. We should put our faith and worship in Christ, not the law or the ritual. The center of our worship and our works should be around Jesus, gospel, good news, and viewing the world around us through the biblical lens. Christians do not stake their eternity or their spiritual lives on rituals or their own good works. The proper confidence of a Christian is not that whether a person has been circumcised or followed some other religious ritual or just doing good works, but whether they have received salvation through faith in Jesus, whether their hearts have been circumcised. The ritual of circumcision is not morally wrong now and was not wrong when Paul wrote this letter. In the same way, adherence to the Torah was also positive, but not absolutely required. However, in comparison with knowing Christ, these things were unimportant. In particular, they are not something that can grant forgiveness of sins before God. Jesus offers a righteousness that is not of the law, but through faith. Third, Paul wants to know Christ and the power of resurrection. We want to experience this resurrection that Christ experienced. We are looking forward to the day when we can fully be with the Lord, but listen to the rest of verse 10. He also wants to share in his sufferings. He wants to know Jesus and everything that is entailed with knowing him, suffering and the resurrection. Paul notes the importance of sharing in his sufferings, and many believers miss this trait, believing that Christian faith provides freedom from hardship. This is a very common and false teaching of modern motivational speakers who use biblical terminology in their speeches. Both Paul and the rest of the early church knew that living for Christ included sharing in both joys and struggles of Christ. This sometimes means suffering. Paul personally endured hardship despite his faithful life spent serving Christ. Paul also notes the concept of mimicking Christ in his death. Some see the idea of martyrdom in this verse. However, the focus is on becoming like him in death and not the method of death. Paul wants to die to the world of sin and temptation so he can be fully transformed in order to be like Christ. Our hope is fixed on the return of Jesus and the resurrection experienced when he returns. This must be the model of our thinking. This is the lens by which we look at life. We must war with our flesh and teach it that Christ is supremely more valuable than whatever we think is so important or useful. We must war with sin and understand that what we are longing for is Christ and the temptation that we are facing will not satisfy us. 
We must teach ourselves that Jesus is more delightful and more desirable than television, movies, entertainment, comfort, hobbies, eating, or anything else that is not sinful, but so often interferes with our pursuit and love for Jesus. Christ should be the center of our lives, our biggest priority, and everything else should revolve around him. I'll just round up by saying that no work or sin makes us more or less acceptable to God before our salvation, which can only be found by faith in Christ. Paul thought he was good, but in reality, his persecution of the church before encountering Christ was evil. True circumcision means that salvation is found by faith in Christ alone and not by the conformity of the law or any of our good works. Because the sacrifice of Christ has fulfilled the law for us. So we don't put our trust in the flesh or abilities in ourselves. But we put our confidence in God and his righteousness, leaving no room for human pride or boasting. I'll leave you with these questions to take away. What are we doing to pursue Christ? What are we throwing away from our lives for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? What needs to be counted as loss for the ultimate gain? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as a family, fully trusting in your provisions your righteousness, and above all, the gift of the Holy Spirit that we receive by mercy and grace. Grant us the wisdom and discernment to surrender to you completely and look up to our shepherd, our rabbi, our high priest, the King of Kings, your son, Jesus Christ. In your mighty name, I pray, amen.